Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The legendary NBA Hall of Famer, Elgin Baylor, passed away last month at the age of 86. He was a brilliant basketball player. Julius Irving described Baylor's style as ballet in basketball. Off the court, he was also heroic, fighting against racism and the segregationist policies of the Jim Crow era. Later in the program, we'll hear from the illustrator and author of a young adult book, Above the Rim, How Elgin Baylor Changed Basketball. First... This year's Atlanta Film Festival and Creative Conference runs from April 22nd through May 2nd. The Atlanta Film Festival is the annual centerpiece of educational film programming provided year-round by its parent organization, the Atlanta Film Society. Chris Escobar is at the helm of both the festival and film society, thanks to his work, among other honors, Atlanta's is one of only a handful of film festivals worldwide that is Academy Award qualifying in three or more categories. He joins us now via Zoom. Chris Escobar, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's always a pleasure. How do this year's 170 selected works demonstrate the festival's continued commitment to amplifying diverse voices? Well, as we've been lucky enough to feature for decades now, we not only have uh, geographic diversity and having films from literally all over the world, all over the country and the region, uh, also of all the major film festivals nationwide, showcasing more films by and from uh, Georgia than any other. But we have, uh, for us, it's important to have the holistic picture. And so we have an incredible amount of gender diversity for years and years now, more than half of our programming has been more female-led than male-led. 
a huge uh, portion of our programming is by people of color and minorities, both from the U.S. and from around the country. You see some tremendous high levels of LGBTQ representation in the festival. Uh, so, I mean, in, in all of the all of the kind of different ways you can look at for diversity, we have that in terms of the people who make the films and where they're from. And of course, that's even aside from the genre diversity or the or you know the fact that we have you know not only short films and feature films, but things like virtual reality and music video. So it really is a, a full spectrum. <laughs> the 2020 Atlanta Film Festival offered all the films streamed online. How will festival goers view this year's films? We're still going to have uh, features that we had last year, uh, which is online, and we're still going to have drive-in options like we had last year. But we're lucky enough to have a couple other options as well. Um, we hosted the, as you might recall, the Sundance Film Festival uh, earlier this year. And that was the first kind of festival experience that we had had um, during the pandemic where we did limited safe indoor. And we were able to utilize all of the safety precautions and measures that we have at the Plaza Theater in place, which makes it a tremendously safe indoor space. Um, and extend those and now have that as part of the festival this year. So we're going to have for the first time since 2019, uh, an indoor option strictly at the Plaza Theater. And then we have a fourth, uh, which we're very excited about, which is we're going to have an outdoor and a lawn-based uh, screening, socially distanced uh, lawn screening at the Carter uh, Presidential Center for the world premiere of Carterland. So we actually have four ways uh, to watch movies uh, this year, and we're excited to have those. Oh, very exciting. What are some of this year's highlights in addition to that Carter film? So we have, you know, I think it's, it's tough to try and describe them as a whole, but I think one of the things that we find in both the, the films that came competitively chosen out of our submissions, I mean, we're talking about the vast majority of our 170 titles, just over 150 of them, were chosen from the submissions of over uh, 9,400 films and screenplays. Um, and, and so if you, you imagine just the, these 150 plus films and screenplays uh, chosen from that many, that's a really competitive rate. I mean, hard, literally a more competitive rate than getting into any Ivy League school. <laughs> Great. Chris, are we to presume you've watched 9,400 films? I have not. No, you can definitely pr not presume that's the case. <laughs> but, um, but our programming team has, has gone through, we had over 7,000 films and over 2,000 screenplays. And they, uh, with the extension also of their associate programmers and their screening and reading committees, did pour over all of these independent works of art submitted from all over the world, multiple times, mind you. Some of these things are reviewed five times before they're, they were selected. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's, if you just think about it, not just from a film or a screenplay, just work of art, that many artists uh, submitting from all over the world, just for the chance, not of, of, we don't have these huge cash prizes or something like that. It's just for the chance to be able to sh us, give us the chance to share their work with our community. I mean, that's an incredible thing if you just kind of step back and think about it. Between that or the, what we call our marquee films, which are films that come from distributors and maybe have more recognizable names and faces and things like that. Um, one of the things that we're finding is that there is a, a, a collective shift in perspective and approach. There is certainly a lot of, of reckoning that is present in, in these films, 
there's a lot of uh, mourning present in these films, but there's also a lot of let's take a second to stop and, and think about these things and, and pause and, and either appreciate them or reflect on them or reconcile them. There's also, you're starting to see hope present in some of these films. And so there's, there's a lot of themes that despite the fact that all, all these works were made on different timetables, literally in different countries and continents, you know, they're, they're, they're not made in coordination. And, and we're not programming them uh, because there's a certain theme or an agenda that we you know, want to portray. But it is likely that when you see this kind of, this many works and you start to see things that you do start to find some trends. You do start to find some things that we are as a, as a species collectively trying to express. Hmm. And what are those themes? You know, I think it's, it's aside from the themes, like I mentioned, of, of mourning, uh, of, of reckoning, of reconciliation, of reviewing and revisiting, taking stock which I think we're all doing in, in a way, but also starting to see themes of, of hope and of, of, of building optimism, maybe that has, has yet to be let out, but is, but is building up. I think watching these films really is a way for us to reflect on some of these feelings that we've, we've all been having over the last year of being under a pandemic, you know, and, and of all of the challenges that's presented in our own lives. It's, presenting opportunities to both escape, but also to be able to process that. Um, you know, that's one of the beautiful things art can do is it can help us process our feelings in a way that perhaps, especially if we've put them on hold, right? Or if, or if we've tried to avoid them, or if we've um, not had the chance to stop and think about them. When, when you're watching a film, or in the same way, when you're watching a, a, even a live theater play, and you're having that undivided attention to the story and to the characters, and you're not distracted doing other things. It sometimes allows you to open up in a way that you hadn't expected to, um, to, to have hope and optimism, to you know, uh, consider these things in a, in a different light than perhaps you hadn't before. Uh, and those are, you know, that is certain, that's usually always a presence in the festival, uh, but perhaps there are other themes that maybe are more, more present, more predominant, and, and these have really kind of floated up to the top. I see that RuPaul's Drag Race star, Rock M. Secura, and local drag performers will be involved with the April 23rd screening of Socks on Fire. What will they be doing? They're going to be uh, doing a performance before the film opens. And this is a really kind of special documentary, but it's kind of bigger than just a, do a regular documentary. The director, Bo McGuire, um, with, with this film really takes an incredibly intimate look at his own family and these issues and conflicts around homophobia, especially based between an aunt of his and, and then has a, a drag queen uncle. Uh, and it's all kind of a match is sort of lit, so to speak, when there's a death in the family. And I mean, this is honestly almost on the verge of, of a narrative dramatic scripted film, but this is all the more real. And what's really fascinating about this film is it has very different modes. It has, you know, sort of a more traditional documentary mode of, you know, you have people speaking uh, in present day, speaking in the past tense about things that have happened. But then we have these really fascinating uh, kind of recreation modes and reenacted modes um, where, they're, where they're taking uh, either real people and or performers uh, to play these roles that you're hearing about. But then there's this third mode where it pops out and it's almost like a behind the scenes mode. And, and it is very much about the making process and about bringing these people together to tell these stories. 
And so it's, it's sort of different layers of sort of, of past and present and sort of internal present. And so it's just such a fascinating film. This actually received an award for the Tribeca Film Festival, but they had not done it. They had canceled any of the screenings because of the timing during the pandemic. So it had, it did not actually screen. And so uh, we're very, we're going to be one of the first screenings publicly this film has had. And then it's going to be kicking off a tour nationwide and going to different cities around the country. And so, you know, normally with our opening night film, we normally have the film um, happen. We do a Q&A and then we have some party that kind of kicks off the festival. You know, obviously we're still in a weird state right now. And so we're sort of having our celebratory moment right attached with the film there and having these, these drag performances that are going to be larger than life and that are going to be high energy and and so that's going to allow us to celebrate, even if we have this mode where we have to, where we're able to be together, even if it's still with some distance and, and distancing, but still be able to celebrate together and have this thing that you're not going to have at home and have this thing that you're not going to be able to watch uh, online like that. Having this experience together will certainly be a unique thing that we've all been missing. Chris Escobar is the executive director of the Atlanta Film Festival. We'll return after a short break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with the Atlanta Film Festival Executive Director, Chris Escobar. Here, he talks about the new documentary, Carterland, and how this film differs from others about former President Jimmy Carter. Last year was the release of the documentary, Jimmy Carter, Rock and Roll President. And, yes. Uh, and that one, it was a terrific film and focuses on the you know unlike, unlikely and unorthodox candidacy and then win of, of President Carter, but really doesn't focus on him as president, not by and large. And if anything, reinforces the myth that Carter Land uh, takes on from the get-go, which is the myth that, look, Carter... Uh, is a great guy. He's been an incredible, you know, former president, but he wasn't really a good president. And instead, this says that couldn't be further from the truth. He is probably the most underrated, uh, unappreciated president we've ever had and goes through meticulously as to why. And, and this is really an important film, not just for maybe the Carter legacy and, you know, giving us a chance to really see history and perhaps correct history that maybe glossed over the ripple effect of his decisions and the things he did. But I think more importantly, 
why this is an important film for right now is this really sets up reminding us that President Carter had to follow, and his administration, had to follow the most tumultuous administration in American history until that time. And there was a huge crisis of faith in our institutions. And so that not only did they have to tackle the issues individually of runaway inflation that had already happened and an energy crisis that had already happened and a number of these things that were building up, not only from the previous administration, but before that. These were, these were large issues that had not really been checked for multiple administrations, but had to try and restore faith in the integrity of our American democracy. And that rings so true right now. You know, I, I'm paraphrasing, but if the Mark Twain expression is history doesn't repeat itself, but certainly rhymes. And, and this really reminds us of that. And on top of that, meticulously goes through and goes, here's this instance, this instance, And Carter had to choose between doing the right thing for his career and the right thing that was, would have been right for him politically and the right thing for the country. And what that meant facing those tough issues when doing the right thing for the country wasn't necessarily in your own best interest. There's a genuine humility about him that is part of his power. He was able to do miracles When I was sworn in as ambassador to the United Nations, he gave me a little handwritten note. I want you to go to Africa, ask African leaders what they expect of this administration and how we can help them. That didn't register with me then. Now I see that that was what I've come to call the politics of respect. Every other president we've ever had goes to people and tells them what America wants them to do. He asked. That simple gesture of respect made it possible for him to work with people without violence, and it didn't cost us any money. I mean, we were not forcing them to do anything, so we didn't have to bribe them. We were asking them what they wanted us to do, and he evidently did this with everybody. Ours is a great country. And one of the reasons it's so great is that we are different from one another. We've come here from all over the world. And this doesn't make us weak. It makes us stronger. I'm still processing the 9,400 submissions, Chris. (laughs) Do you think this influx of submissions was due to the pandemic and people having more time for creativity? In some ways, yes. So we've, we've seen a huge rise of our submissions. I mean, since, since 2011, in 2011, we had 1,500 submissions, keep in mind. And that has been growing and growing every year. And I think part of this is more people making films and, and writing screenplays. But if you were to compare us to say the film festival that receives the most submissions, which is the Sundance Film Festival, their, their number of submissions has not really climbed quite as much over the years. And so that gives you a sense of sort of the total number. And, and yet ours has been climbing and climbing. And I think that's in part because our organization has really been doing a lot of work over the last decade to raise the status, to raise the visibility, but also to show that this is what we really care about is to be able to find these films by overlooked artists, by people from overlooked communities, to give them a chance to tell a story that's very different than the ones being heard. I think that has always been who we are. I think we've just been 
doing a better job over the last 10 years of, of making other people aware that that's who we are and that's what we want. Uh, I think the, what we've seen over the last year with the pandemic though, is we actually had a, a tiny, tiny drop in the number of films submitted, um, but we had a double in the number of screenplays submitted. And I think that's directly tied to the fact that it only takes one person, certainly more people can write a screenplay, but it only takes one person to write a screenplay. And so if you're sitting at home, you know, sheltering in place, um, that's one of the few productive things that a lot of artists could do on their own, particularly in this medium. Whereas normally, obviously making a film is a much more collaborative and takes normally a lot more people to do. So I, so yes, I think that is common, both of those, the fact that films went down a little bit and screenplays went up so much. I, I'm expecting that we're going to see that even more so uh, for the 2022 film festival, which we're already starting on work. You can believe that. I believe uh, to, to <laughs> mount something this yeah. enormous and this encompassing, Chris, I have no trouble believing that. So we're, we're expecting, though, to see that, unfortunately, that will probably continue, is uh, the people's, uh, filmmakers' abilities to be able to get crews together safely will, will have largely be had, has been inhibited, and that'll be present in the number of films submitted, and that perhaps screenplays not as much. But yeah, I mean, hopefully we will also uh, continue to see these collective expressions present in, in, in next year's as well. So it's always a fascinating uh, thing to to look at all these things that are made so independently of each other, and uh, but but maybe there's these large things that resonate with everyone. The Creative Conference will feature three master classes. Who will present, and what will those classes address? So the Creative Conference, in some ways, will have some of the things that we've always featured, which is discussions, conversations case studies on the art, craft, and business of film and television. That's always been present. What's been uh, more different this year is, in some ways we had a, a bit of this last year, is the ability to be able to talk to people who uh, maybe when participation in the conference and involvement in the conference was contingent on being able to be here in Atlanta, then perhaps, you know, those choices were, were you know, limited in that way. And so instead, we're able to talk to folks, you know, while they're on set across the country or across the world, and be able to have these conversations. We're very lucky um, where uh, at least two of the master classes we're going to have are connected to the Atlanta Film Festival in different ways. So for instance, the artist Wayne White, which was, you know, a, a huge creative powerhouse behind uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse, and just a titan in the in the world of puppetry, we're going to be able to have a a masterclass conversation with uh, Wayne White. And we actually played a documentary about him uh, back in 2012. So it's a kind of interesting throwback there. And then the film Blind Spotting, which stars David Diggs and uh, Rafael Casa, was a film that we played as our um, opening night film a number of years ago. And we're able to have them both in attendance. Um, and now is actually being uh, turned into a, a series. And so a lot of people might recognize if they, they don't know David Diggs from, from Blind Spotting or even um, Snowpiercer, which is a, another series from, a, from another movie, they would certainly recognize him as Lafayette from Hamilton. You know, this is an example of, of their, they're currently in production and we're able to, you know, kind of steal them for, for a little bit of time to be able to have this conversation about uh, adapting this feature film that they had wrote a number of years ago and then starred in together. 
and now being able to expand on that and, and adapt it to a series, you know, it's, it's a very interesting, uh, it's kind of a whole different nature of a beast, uh, being able to take something that, you know, it's already one thing of taking a screenplay and, you know, actually mounting it into a film, but it's another thing to take a film that people have known and then being able to expand on that world in a way um, through a series, you know, it, those, those transformations are always fascinating to me personally through the creative process, but also when you see uh, works adapt, literary works adapted to film. And you know, I think always, you know, the choice, the creative choices that are made, the ideas that are having to brought to, to the table in order to solve for the fact that this is a different medium. And I think that's always fascinating. Mm. So it's a couple. Five winning screenplays from the screenplay competition will also be announced at a later date. What qualifications did or are the judges looking for in selecting these winners? No, I think with screenplays, for us, it's always twofold. You look for excellency in the craft. You know, when we have such a huge boost in, in, in submissions that really allow us to have an incredible volume to choose from. But then for us, because of what our prize has been, which is that we pair these winners with industry mentors so that it can support them in their pursuit to either bring that screenplay to life as well as benefit them for their career. Uh, unlike the festival uh, the, 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 on the side of programming for films where films are all in consideration and then, and then there's, a, there's a bunch chosen. Um, with the screenplay competition, they're narrowed down into quarterfinalists and semifinalists and and so that's really where it's largely just based on the merits of the screen of the screenplay. But when it comes down to choosing the winners, it also there's a big factor to which of these screenplays will what we have to offer as a prize benefit the most. I mean, at the end of the day, not only are we looking at sharing these great works and highlighting them and celebrating them, but we are really looking to make an impact on the life of these works themselves, but even more so the livelihoods and the careers of these artists behind them. And so that's a, that's a big factor for uh, our programming team, especially for the screenplay competition. Chris, what advice would you give other festivals looking to diversify their lineups and selections? That might be a little tough. Uh, and the reason being is part of why the Atlanta Film Festival is so diverse is because the Atlanta Film Festival has always been so diverse. If anything, uh, we've been able to enjoy the richness of that diversity more because the one thing that we have really done, and like I've mentioned over the last 10 years especially, is we've really been vocal about this is what we're looking for. We've really been transparent about these are the kinds of works from the kinds of communities that we prioritize. It's not to say exclusively look for, but prioritize. And we've tried to also make sure that while we look for diversity to be represented on screen, that it's also present in all the aspects of our organization, with our staff, with our board, with our volunteers, with our audience. We're really trying to look at this holistically and make sure that Atlanta's film festival is representative of the communities that make up Atlanta. And so uh, we've really embraced that for years now and, and tried to make sure that it stays true and continues to be true. And in fact, we've, it's also you know, had us examine what are the ways that we can improve while there's some things that we've been very strong in. We've realized that when it comes to representing and including the folks with accessibility challenges, when it comes to representing 
Native American communities. Uh, those are some areas that we really have some improvement on. And so while there's things that we've done well, it's also, you know, caused us to realize where we need, where we have work to do and making sure that, you know, when that's true on screen, it's also in true and all, all our other facets. Christopher Escobar is the executive director of the Atlanta Film Festival, which begins tomorrow and runs through May 2nd. More information about their offerings will be on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Stand-up comics often draw from personal experience. For Ali Siddick, a career in comedy was born out of a life experience not funny in any way. His six years in prison. In 2018, he returned to prison to tape his first one-hour stand-up special. It's bigger than these bars. I spoke with Ali Siddiq when he was in Atlanta in January of last year and asked if his interest in comedy began in prison. I don't think it started there. I just think that's what gave me, that's what I focused on while I was in there, being a light for other people, being jovial for other people, you know, just, you know, dealing with my own being in this position that I did not want to be in. You know, I had to find something to be lighthearted about. You know, my thing was I'm here now, you know, why not just enjoy whatever ride this is or get through it any kind of way? Because that's not like the toughest thing I've ever been through is being incarcerated. When you have a um, eight-year-old sister that passes away that you're very, very close to, you know that that was way tougher than oh. prison. You know that you know it's a it's a thing. So you try to find moments that to laugh about inside of that. You know, eight years. You know when it was you know most painful for you to lose her. You know, but oh. you you think you think about those things. And my stand up career, it was you know it it was actually started on I I would say on F line on this this unit called LS two where um I was put over I was like a janitor I was put over the block they was in close custody so they was locked up like 23 hours a day mm. and they got the worst clothes the worst food you know no TV no nothing and I would be sitting there reading the paper before I cleaned up and I, and I just kind of started listening to why they used to be mad all the time why they used to flood the run and set the run on fire and throw feces out because they would get the worst of the worst. So I started making sure that they had better things. I would I would go to the laundry and make sure they had clean white clothes and I would make sure that I served their food when it was hot, not let it just sit in the hallway and get, you know, cold or lukewarm. You know, it, it just came out of treating people human. I was going to say you, you found a way to restore their humanity and treat them with some dignity yeah and and i used to watch the show martin and i i would watch with with a intensity that people like why he watching it so focused because i i because they didn't have a tv so i would remember all the parts that i could 
and go and perform it for them on the block and, and dissect the showdown. And when Martin went off the air, I didn't have anything else to do. So I just started doing commentary about what was going on in the prison just in front of the, the bars. And so they would people would just come to the edge of the bars and they would just laugh at the things that I would say about what was going on. So I just I just kept doing it. Well, you do have some amazing observations. We have a clip from your It's Bigger Than These Bars special. And in this clip, you're talking about being caught with four ounces of marijuana just a couple of years ago. And when I'm about to walk in the holding cell, the man told me, hey, let me get them shoes. I said, what you need my shoes for? He said, because um, we can't have you killing yourself while you in this cell. I said, brother, let me explain something to you. Y'all busted me for a half a blunt. You should be embarrassed. <laughs> and I am embarrassed for somebody who got busted the first time with five kilos of coke. Now you got me here on a half a blunt. I'm ashamed of me and you. <laughs> okay, that, that was an interesting perspective. In 2018, your one-hour special on Comedy Central called It's Bigger Than These Bars made its debut, and the special was filmed entirely in a Texas jail. That clip was from that experience. What was it like for you performing alongside fellow inmates, to have gone from performing alongside fellow inmates to then performing in a room of inmates? It it was it was really a very easy transition. I, I went to the unit a couple of times and spent some time with them, and I was very comfortable in this environment because it was like, now I'm free, and I can bring a better perspective on how to make it out of this place because you know I would I would give my perspective on how we gonna make it out of the situation when I was in the situation so for to go back and people see whether young or old they got a chance to see somebody who said who made a plan inside of prison came out of prison and put that plan into action and now I'm back in this prison with a camera crew and a network and I'm shooting a special that's going to network that's in a prison. I it was I think they felt very um grateful that I would come back to show them and give them a different perspective. Like this is not the end all be all. You you can get out of this situation with the right mental fortitude and be the same as me cuz I'm not a superhero. I'm just a focused person and and I had this genuine love for myself that I didn't want to be back in this situation. Comedian Ali Siddick, It's Bigger Than These Bars, is available on Vimeo, and the audio version is available via Spotify. The legendary NBA Hall of Famer, Elgin Baylor, passed away last month at age 86. He played for the Los Angeles and Minneapolis Lakers until his retirement in 1971, a hero on and off the basketball court. Last October, I spoke with author Jennifer Bryant 
and illustrator Frank Morrison about their young adult book, Above the Rim, How Elgin Baylor Changed Basketball. I asked the author first why Elgin Baylor's legacy isn't as widely known as one would think. Well, you're right about that. Given his major contribution both on and off the court, it is surprising. And really, over the course of my uh, writing career, which is now going on three decades, that's really become my mission, is to find underknown, under-celebrated individuals who have contributed in some large way to their field. I've done artists, and I've done inventors, and musicians, and poets, but Elton Baylor is the first athlete. And for me, Lois, really, I don't have a, a, a hard and fast line between art and athletics. I've always been interested in the creative artistic side of sports, uh, both as a participant and as a fan. So I've always been on the lookout for individuals who, you know, who have changed the aesthetic of their sport. And uh, about seven years ago, I was reading a biography of Julius Irving, who, if you'll know, is a, uh, a 76ers player, former 76ers player. And um, in it, he recounted a time when he was a young man and had a serious knee injury and was in a hip to ankle cast and could do nothing but lay on the couch and watch television. And one day he sees Elgin Baylor playing and it something, it gives him an, an epiphany really. And he begins to mentally rehearse how he will one day play the game of basketball based on the modeling that he sees before him in Elgin Baylor, the, this above the rim type of, of play. And he delights in the artistry and the creativity. And so when I'm reading that as a biographer, I'm thinking, hmm, that's interesting. I you know, I know a little bit about Elgin Baylor. Let me poke around a little bit more. So I listened to audio recordings. I watched a lot of videotape, um, read books, magazines, older sports magazines, and just built up a mountain of information about his early life. And then of course his, his action in 1959 when he uh, boycotted the game in Charleston, West Virginia to protest uh, racial discrimination. So it came along slowly as most of these things do, but it was uh, a wonderful uh, a story that really needed to be told for young people. Would you talk about how you use the story of Elgin Baylor's life to correspond with milestones in the civil rights movement? Sure. I mean, um, his action uh, in, on January 16th, 1959, um, where his uh, Minneapolis Lakers, he was, he was a first first year player. He was a rookie NBA player. And in those days, the NBA only had eight teams. And it was, you know, fascinating to imagine the kind of, of travel and lives that they, they had much, much different than today. And they didn't really have a big fan base. But Elgin was really the star of the team. But he was turned away at uh, the hotel when they got to uh, West Virginia and also turned away at restaurants. And at 
that was enough. He said, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, they can't just let me out of a cage like an animal to play the game and not treat me like a human being the rest of the time. And this was, it was important in the book as I'm writing the text to make sure that it was clear that other things that off the court outside of athletics, Rosa Parks, the uh, Wichita, Kansas food counter uh, sit-ins and protests, the desegregation of schools in the South. Um, it's important to that young people know the context of what was happening in, in at the same time and that this, you know, this was part of a, a larger movement of athletes and non-athletes, um, but he was really the first pro-athlete to stage a boycott. So all the modern day, you know, protests and boycotts and kneeling at games that you see today really echoes back to this, to Elgin Baylor sitting out the game in West Virginia. Yeah. Frank, your dedication in the book reads... To all the children who love basketball as much as I love painting, your illustrations are wonderful. And I love the picture where Elgin is airborne. And part of the text reads, in one smooth move like a plane taking off, he would leap higher and higher and higher, as if pulled by some invisible wire. Would you describe the picture you created for that? Oh, wow. The page you're describing, it's, it's, it's what we're talking about. Uh, the we have to go back to the prior page. And that is a page of the, a group of young individuals coming together, and they're debating. So I would call this the great debate. And in this debate, they're going back and forth about bragging about who's better and who's this and who can do that and who can do this. And then out of the blue, if you look further back, you peer back, you see Elgin. He's doing a little crossover and coming up, coming up approaching this, this group of, of braggers and, and trash talkers. You know, you have to tra talk trash. And, and <laughs> you just have to. And so instead of participating, he proves them all wrong. He goes over everyone. He goes over the gossip. He goes over the naysayers. And he flies through the air. And he does this wonderful finger roll that he just drops off gently into the hoop. And you have the background. You have the sun at his back. And it's a silhouette. And he's just coming. You have a little bit of that basketball hoop in the background. And he's just soaring above everyone. And that's just making sure that he, and I believe this picture shows that he was different then, even on the court, you would have seen it. He may not have participated in all that, all that back and forth jarring. Of course, you're gonna do it while you're on the court, but off the court, it's, it doesn't make any sense. It's you prove who you are on the court. And I think that's what this picture shows. You also have a sun behind him. It, it has a halo effect, almost like an angel. Oh, yes, yes. And it's where to use the sun. I'm going to play off of that. And I believe it's for all the fathers and sons and, and the people behind us that we're, we're walking ahead of with our talents. We're all walking, we're all using what we grew up with. And we're always, we're using our background, our family background, our heritage and our talents that were brought up. I, my talent came from my mother and my, my grandfather were, were artists. And so when you put the sun in the background, it's just, you're moving forward. We're moving forward. And that's what I feel like it does. 
Beautiful. Throughout the book, we see examples of Elgin Baylor's quiet dignity. Was he as humble in real life? Yes, I think he was and is. Yes, he did. Uh, he did not. He liked to have his play speak for him. And it wasn't that he couldn't be chatty. I mean, if you, uh, you know, read the interviews with his uh, fellow players when they were traveling and whatnot, he was, he was very talkative and a storyteller. But, you know, on, on the court, he preferred to let his play speak for him. And he really eschewed any sort of anyone making a big deal about how he could play and what he could do. I mean, even when you watch the film reels, when he's being interviewed after he retired and they, you know, they have, they're interviewing Elgin Baylor as he's watching his own film reels and they're saying, wow, look look at what you could do. He will just say, well, you know, there were probably other people who could do these things, but I don't know, you know, I just, that, that's just what came to me at the time. So he's, he's, he's very, uh, as we say in the book, it was, it felt spontaneous to him. And he, uh, he was just a wonderful player, a wonderful artist on the court. And I do think he uh, continues to be as humble to this day as he ever was back then. NBA milestones in mid 20th century American history all depicted in this book. Frank, I was hoping you would talk about the pictures you created of Rosa Parks and the group at the lunch counter sitting and being harassed as they quietly protested. Well, I just feel when I do have opportunities to paint our civil rights heroes, really, I just feel blessed. And I wanted to do the best I can, particularly on these images, because I hold them with high respect. Particularly with Rosa, I wanted to show she did get in good trouble, as John would say. And so as I painted her, she didn't look uh, apologetic for what happened. She looks stern. She Yes, it is a, it's a very distinct portrayal of her. It almost brought to mind Confucius or some Chinese philosopher, you know, I guess her nonviolent protest. Yes, yes. yes. And, 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 and what I also did is I love to play whenever I can pull that urban restoration or that mannerism into it. I use spray paint and oil on this canvas. And that way I can pull in, draw a lot of the, uh, the current, show how important it is now, bring the contemporary and show the past. So I juxtapose both of those together for this painting. Um, and then the counter, oh gosh, the black and white. So many times growing up, I watched uh, Eyes on the Prize and, you know, it, it, it's, you know, I, for some reason, I just fell, fell in love with history then. Seeing what my mother and grandmother and grandfathers went through to have us, to, for me to be here today. And moving, now I live in the South. And I live, actually, my house is on an old plantation that they turned into a subdivision. And every day I look out of that window and I think, oh my gosh, 
you know, who looked at that tree? Who, which one of my ancestors might have been on this plantation? Looked at across that street, at this tree line. What did that tree line mean to them? Was it a border? It, for me, it's just greenery, it's fresh air. I see hawks. But was that a border for them? And so when I do get a, a chance to look at, to, to go back and paint once again, history, I just, I, I show that this, you know, she's being heckled and she's being, you know, even with the military, they're looking straight ahead as if it's nothing can happen. Nothing, they can't stop them. They're just there to stop them from violent, being violent, but not mental violence that's going on. They can still juror and talk all this stuff to her. But then I have, what is it all about? And it's about books. It's about education. And so I highlighted that one part uh, of the book, Red. And that's how the importance of that fire of education and understanding that we get from, um, from especially looking back and seeing how it was. That we still have a long way to go, but we can say how it was. And then we use our history to move forward. The picture with Elgin Baylor sitting out the game, where he is seated on the bench with his teammates, and again, that quiet dignity. He's wearing a white shirt, a necktie, like so many of the other peaceful protesters, impeccably dressed for the occasion. And Jen, you write, sometimes you have to sit down to stand up. Was that a recurring theme for Mr. Baylor? This incident in West Virginia, he had uh, been turned away before when they had played in, in Carolina, and he had said to himself and to another teammate, you know, if this happens again, I'm going to do something. And uh, so when they got to West Virginia, he was turned away at the hotel. The whole team then went to a hotel where everyone was welcome. And then he was turned away at restaurants and he had to eat in his room. And that uh, player that's pictured sitting next to him, Hot Rod Hunley, the white player, they were, they were good friends. And Rod had come to him that night because Rod Hunley was a West Virginia native. This was his home court here. He was from this area. He, all his family was there. He told his friends to come. He was very excited that they would get to see him, but also Elgin Baylor was the star of the team. And when he saw that Elgin wasn't dressing, he tried to convince him to play. And Elgin said, Rod, I'm a human being. I'm not an animal let out for the show. I want to be treated like a human being. And Rod said, you know what? You're right. Don't play. And um, so, you know, that whole moment then has to be, as a picture book author, it's really like writing poetry. You have to condense, 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 and try and capture a lot of information in a way that is effective emotionally for young readers. So sitting down to stand up is a phrase that I actually checked with the Library of Congress on uh, the origins. has been used several times. There's a footnote in the back about it. But peaceful protesting sitting down has been used across cultures and it's just a wonderful paradox a wonderful verbal play you know it's sitting down is really standing up and I just felt that that epitomized his quiet protest uh, that ended up being very very effective. I wasn't surprised when I went to your website 
after I read the book to learn that you are also a poet because I think the use of these refrains, people stopped what they were doing, they stopped to watch, and then the fans noticed, the newspapers noticed. You use these recurring themes and refrains, and I think that the combination of your poetic text with Frank's beautiful illustrations, particularly the way you capture motion, Frank, motion and emotion, it just makes for a marvelous book. I hope that many young adult and adult readers will partake in the story of Elgin Baylor. Oh, well, thank you. That's very, very generous. We, I, I, I feel very, very fortunate to, to work with Frank. And uh, it's a small miracle when you see words and, and uh, paintings come together in something like this. Is It is, I think, oh, I know, Frank, I, we feel like it's a celebration. When you find an individual who is underknown and has done so much, it's a privilege to be a part of it, and it's just a joy to see it come together so that more people know about him. Author Jennifer Bryant and illustrator Frank Morrison. Their recent young adult book about Elgin Baylor is Above the Rim. Elgin Baylor passed away last month at age 86. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Summer Evans is City Lights producer. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. And I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Find archived interviews and shows on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. Thank you for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.